Hello, true crime enthusiasts. Welcome to Grace is on the Case. I'm your host, Grace Lynn Keller, and today we're going to be diving into one of the most famous cases in the state of Iowa, the disappearance of Jody Husentrude. While this case did happen in small town Iowa, it made national headlines back in the 90s when it first began to unfold, and it continues to be one of Iowa's biggest unsolved mysteries. Chances are if you ask someone who lives in Iowa, like me, they know all about the Jody Who's a True case and definitely have their own theories as to what happened to her. There's been over 1,000 police interviews conducted and thousands of leads investigated since Jody disappeared in 1995. Throughout nearly three decades since Jody's disappearance, new leads and suspects have popped up and been investigated, but there's never been a conclusion to this case and it remains cold. I'm going to take you through what we know today, 27 years after Jody went missing, and discuss the most prevalent possible leads, theories, and suspects that have been on the police's radar. I'll also be talking with Steve Ridge, a journalist and independent investigator who has spent a great amount of his own time looking into this case and has even been able to sit down with persons of interest who have not granted interviews with anybody else. So without further ado, let's jump into the chilling and mysterious disappearance of Jody Husentrude. On Tuesday, June 27, 1995, around 4.10 in the morning, Amy Coons, a KIMT news station producer in Mason City, Iowa, realized that her morning show anchor, Jody Husentrude, had not shown up to report as scheduled before her broadcast. Jody had been late a few times before, but always made it in in time for the 6 a.m. newscast. Coons called Jody's apartment to see what was up, and much to her relief, Jody answered the phone, awakened by the call, explaining that she had overslept and she was leaving for the station momentarily. Relieved, Amy hung up the phone, reassured that Jody would make it in soon. But by 6 a.m., Jody had still not arrived at the station, and Amy had to fill in for her on the morning show. By 7 a.m., when Jody still hadn't arrived and couldn't be reached, the KIMT staff called the police. After explaining that Amy Coons had, in fact, spoken to Jody that morning, the police's first stop was to Jody's apartment. Upon arrival, they could immediately tell that something was off. They found her car still in the parking lot and a scene next to it that insinuated a struggle had taken place. Many of Jody's personal items were found scattered across the area, including a pair of women's dress shoes that had belonged to Jody, a hairdryer, a can of hairspray, and an earring. Police found her car key as well, which had been bent. They were also able to recover an unidentified partial palm print from her car and a single unidentified hair at the scene. These findings suggested foul play, escalating the original wellness check into a missing persons investigation. So police then had a look in Jody's apartment after identifying the scene outside, and everything there seemed normal. The only thing out of place was that the toilet seat was up, which led police to wonder if she had had a male visitor since she lived alone. But no other evidence was found that anyone had been with Jody that morning, and other than that, the apartment bore no signs of foul play like the scene outside. Amy Coons also stated that her morning call to Jody had actually woken Jody up, and that everything seemed normal during their brief conversation. This pointed police to focus on the area around the car, assuming that whatever happened did not occur until Jody left her apartment that morning. 
So after securing the scene around Jody's car and looking at her apartment, police started to interview some of her neighbors around the complex. This leads them to a few witnesses that heard a scream coming from the parking lot around the time that Jody would have been leaving for work that morning, but nobody called the police. Another witness stated that when he drove by the parking lot around 3.50 that morning, he saw a white van parked in Jody's parking lot with the headlights off and couldn't tell if the engine was running or not. This witness was able to identify the van as a Ford Econoline, but did not get a plate number. A neighbor who lived across the street from Jody's complex also came forward and said she saw a light-colored van parked outside the building's entrance between 4 and 4.30 that morning. This is shortly after the man driving by saw it in the parking lot. She said that the sound of a slamming car door had woken her up, and that's when she looked out the window and saw the van. She said as she fell back asleep, she heard another slam, and when she awoke again two hours later, the van was gone. She thinks the slamming sounds that woke her up may have been the rear doors of the van's hatch being closed. Now, just for clarity's sake, I want to point out the specific model the first witness identified the van being is what you typically consider like a work van. You know, like the big white ones that maintenance workers, plumbers, contractors, and people in similar lines of work often drive. It is not a minivan, so remember that because it will be important later. Circling back to our two van witnesses, I also want to make a point to say that both of them saw the building every single day. The woman lived across the street with her windows facing Jody's building, and the man actually commuted past that building at the same time every morning. Each of them made it a point to say that they had never seen a van like this parked anywhere near the building before, and this prompted police to begin searching for similar vans in the area. After additional interviews, another witness came forward and said that around 4.30 the morning prior to Jody's disappearance, she had seen a young Black man riding his bike outside Jody's apartment while jogging, which she thought was odd for that time of morning. He then began to ride his bike beside her as she jogged away from the building, which she found unsettling. The next morning around 4.30 a.m., so this is the morning that Jody did disappear, she was nearly hit by a car while jogging again in the same spot. The car's headlights were off, and she testified that it would have hit her had she not jumped back onto the sidewalk. This witness jogged the same route past Jody's building at the same time nearly every day, and she made it a point to mention that both of these events were very strange. I also could not find any identification of this vehicle that almost hit her. I searched high and low on the internet, but I could not find anything that identified this. Was it a work van like our other two witnesses saw? Was it a regular car? Maybe just someone in a hurry to get to work that morning? I don't know. I couldn't identify any testimony or statement from this woman or from police identifying this van, unfortunately. So that brings us to the day after Jody's disappearance, when the FBI and the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations joined the investigations with Mason City PD. A statement was released saying that officials suspected foul play, but that nothing concrete had been found and no one had been named a suspect despite over 100 interviews being conducted. So let's quickly review the first 24 hours before I move forward because we've got a lot going on, yet we've also got authorities saying they've got no concrete suspects or leads. So first we've got the scene in Jody's parking lot where her things were strewn about, plus the palm print in the unidentified hair that was found on or near her car. 
Then we've also got the witnesses who said that they heard screaming coming from the parking lot around the time that Jody would have been leaving for work, but nobody called the police. We also have the two witnesses who saw the van in the parking lot, the first one being at 3.50 a.m., who identified it as the big white work van, and the second being between 4 and 4.30 a.m., who heard the doors opening and closing. And then finally, we've got the jogger who was followed by the young black man on his bike the morning before Jody went missing and then was almost hit by a car the next morning. So in an effort to piece together more of Jody's life in the days leading up to her disappearance, police began retracing Jody's steps. They learned that on June 23, 1995, four days before she went missing, Jody and a group of friends visited Iowa City. Jody's friend John Van Sice was the driver for the trip. They spent the weekend at lakes around Iowa City on Van Sice's boat and visiting with Van Sice's college-aged son, who attended the University of Iowa, which was located in Iowa City. On June 25th, the group returned to Mason City. Neighbors reported hearing a man enter the apartment complex that afternoon around 4 p.m., who repeatedly pounded on Jody's door saying, I know you're in there and come out. But neighbors said that Jody had just recently bought herself a new car, and this car was not in the parking lot at this time, so it's concluded that Jody wasn't actually home, and the man must not have known she had the new car. No one was able to identify him. The day before her disappearance on June 26th, Jody had played in a Chamber of Commerce golf tournament and went to a accompanying dinner to this event. Afterwards, she went to John Van Sice's home, the same one who drove that group that visited Iowa City, around 8 p.m. to view a videotape of the birthday party celebration that Van Sice had planned for her earlier that month. It's reported by neighbors that Jody was back home around 10 p.m. that night. With this string of events, Van Sice was identified as the last person to see Jody alive. Now, because of this, Van Sice was the next person police wanted to question in this case. So let's dive into him for a moment. Jody and Van Sice met in October of 1994 because they lived in the same apartment building at the time. At the beginning of March in 1995, Van Sice moved out of the complex and into a duplex that he had purchased, the same one Jody went to the night before she disappeared. Around May or June of 1995, the exact timing here is unclear, it's reported that Van Sice began buying Jody unsolicited gifts and even named his boat after her. There was also an incident that took place at some point in February or March of 1995, so a bit before the unsolicited gifts started arriving where he had pushed Jody apart from a man named Billy Pruin, who were dancing at a bar together. Van Sice reportedly told Pruin, quote, she's my girl, unquote. Now, I do feel like I have to mention this despite no official connection to Jody's case ever being made, but on April 4th, 1995, Pruin was found shot to death in his home in Mason City. Officials originally ruled his death a suicide, but the cause was actually changed to undetermined after finding new evidence to suggest that a struggle had taken place in his home. Pruin had also just bought himself a new $200,000 tractor that very day, and he had proposed to his girlfriend two days prior. The case went cold quickly, and Jody was allegedly investigating the death when she went missing. As I mentioned, authorities have never connected this case to Jody's, but I wanted to mention it because a lot of people suspect that her looking into this case may have played a role in something to do with her own case. So going back to the months leading up to Jody's disappearance, it was uncovered that in October 1994, Jody had actually filed a police report saying that she was being followed by a white pickup truck. 
From what I could find, this truck was never identified, nor was its driver. There was also an incident that occurred in the weeks leading up to Jody's disappearance. There was a report of an unidentified man on a bike following her while she was walking. With these things coming to light, shortly after Jody went missing, a martial arts instructor came forward and said that Jody had actually been a student in his self-defense class. When asked the reason for taking the class, Jody said she had an incident a few months prior that she was not comfortable with, but did not elaborate further. She also reportedly told friends that she might have been being followed, and some speculate that these comments may stem from the pickup truck incident, the bike incident, or possibly other incidents that she never discussed with anyone. So with all of this information laid out, the police decided to hone in on John Van Sice as a person of interest. So let's do another quick pause again here and recap these events leading up to Jody's disappearance, this time in chronological order. Because again, there's a lot happening here. So to start off, Jody moves into her apartment complex in the spring of 1993. About a year before she went missing in October of 1994, Jody filed that police report that she had been followed by a white pickup truck. Jody meets John Van Sice in their apartment complex in October of 1994 as well, and this is eight months before she goes missing. In March of 1995, Van Sice moves out of this complex, but the two obviously remain in contact. At some point around this time as well, Van Sice shoves Billy Pruin away from Jody at the bar and called her, quote, his girl, unquote. Billy is then found dead on April 4th of the same year. At some point around this time as well, there is no exact date. Jody was followed by that unidentified man on the bike. Then in May or June, Van Sice begins buying Jody these unsolicited gifts and names his boat after her. On June 23rd, Jody and that group of friends that included Van Sice leaves to go to Iowa City. They return on the 25th. The afternoon of the 25th, we have that unidentified man banging on Jody's door saying, come out, I know you're in there. Then on June 26th, Jody plays in a golf tournament, then visits Van Sice's home to watch the tape of her birthday party, and she's home around 10 p.m. At 4 a.m. the morning of June 27th, Amy Coon speaks with Jody on the phone, and sometime between that call and the police arriving at her apartment a bit after 7 a.m., Jody disappears. So given this information, police identify Van Sice as most likely the last person to see Jody alive, as I mentioned toward the top of this episode. So they go to interview Van Sice, and they gather statements from those who had been around him in the days preceding and following Jody's disappearance. The morning Jody went missing, Van Sice's friend, LaDonna Woodford, who he frequently went on walks with in the morning, called John on his home landline around 6 a.m., and he answered it. She showed up at his house a bit after this. When she knocked, Van Sice told her to give him a minute, so she waited on his porch. The friend reported that he did not come out for around 20 minutes, and when they finally took their walk, he talked about Jody the whole time. Van Sice then met with a friend for a standing breakfast meeting at Casey's around 7 a.m., Little sidebar here for my non-Midwesterners. Casey's is a gas station, but it also serves hot food like pizza, hot dogs, fried chicken, and the like. They're famous for their breakfast pizza across the Midwest. And speaking as an Iowan myself, this is not a strange place to meet up with friends for a cheap breakfast. I just wanted to throw that out there so y'all could understand, like, this isn't a weird thing to do because I've mentioned Casey's to my non-Midwestern friends before, and I've definitely gotten the side eye. 
So anyway, they met at Casey's and the friend informed Van Sice that Jody wasn't on the news that morning like usual and said that they should go check on her, to which Van Sice replied, quote, Jody's gone, unquote. Van Sice later said that this comment referred to him also not seeing her on the news that morning, but it came off as a bit eerie to his friend. At 7.20 a.m., Van Sice then phoned the KIMT station asking for Jody, but when he was told she wasn't there, he and two other men arrived at Jody's apartment complex while the police were still on scene. At the scene, Van Sice told police that she had been at his home the night prior to watch the videotape of her birthday party, and after this statement, police had him bring the tape into the station and question him for the first time. Since June 27th, Van Sice has been questioned multiple times since Jody's case began, but has never been named an official suspect. I want to make that very clear. To this day, he has only been called a person of interest. He also drove a blue van at the time, which caused some people to speculate with that white van being one of the only leads in the case. People have gone down a rabbit hole on this because of the two van witnesses, but remember when I said we were going to put a pin in the exact description of the van seen in Jody's parking lot? This is why. Van Sice had a blue minivan at the time, not a white work van like the first witness identified. So many people investigating this case have gotten like up in arms about this and claim that Van Sice owning a van is the nail in the coffin for him. But really, the van he owns doesn't even come close to matching the witness's description. And it was also ruled out by police shortly after Jody went missing. So the van here, while it's kind of a coincidence, I guess you could say, really has nothing to do with this case. So without more information, witnesses, or evidence, Van Sice was kept as a person of interest, and the police had to turn to other avenues to try and locate Jody. In doing this, the police turned their attention to Tony Jackson, a 21-year-old who lived two blocks from the KIMT station Jody worked at. Jackson is a serial rapist and has a history of violence against women and is currently serving a life sentence in Minnesota for the rapes of three women. Many believe that his residence being so close to the station could have given him an opportunity to see and take an interest in Jody and watch her to know her patterns, which police said they believe the perpetrator or perpetrators of this act did before Jody disappeared. It's speculated that Jackson could have been the young black man seen by the jogger outside Jody's apartment the morning before she went missing, as well as the man on the bike who followed Jody in the weeks before her abduction. While Jackson loosely matches this description, these two things have never been corroborated. Police, however, did name Jackson another person of interest. Jackson denies the claim that he had anything to do with Jody's case, saying he never even saw her in person. But a former friend of Jackson said that Jackson did in fact know Jody, and stated he watched him approach and talk to her at a bar where she was a regular. The friend claims that Jackson had specifically asked if they could go to this bar because he knew that Jody would be there. While this story was never confirmed by any other witnesses, the friend says that he has a gut feeling that Jackson is responsible for the crime due to the other offenses he committed later and is now serving prison time for. A month after Jody went missing, police had interviewed over 800 people, but there were still no official suspects named, and searches in Mason City and the surrounding area had not provided any promising leads. In September of 1995, two months after Jody's disappearance, the Hoosentrout family hired two private investigators from Minneapolis 
who then enlisted the help of another private investigator from Omaha, Nebraska. Together, these three appeared on numerous television shows on behalf of the family, including America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. These appearances generated hundreds of leads, but none that ever brought investigators any closer to finding Jody. In November, four months after Jody went missing, the Who's in Troop family went to Los Angeles to appear on the pilot episode of a television show called Psychic Detectives. The show in itself seems a bit strange, but basically the premise is that the family members or authorities would visit the show's psychics, and the psychics would provide information about the case using their special abilities. On the show, the psychics told the family that Jody's abductor would be someone who saw her on TV and became obsessed with her. Investigators have never found evidence to corroborate this theory. By the six-month mark in December, the reward for information leading to an arrest in Jody's case scaled to $34,000. KIMT staff continued to fill in for her on the morning news program, and the station hadn't hired anyone new to replace her, leaving her listed internally as on leave. In May of 1996, over 100 volunteer searchers swept a large area of northeast Cerro Gordo County, looking for anything suspicious and flagging it for authorities. Though many places were flagged, unfortunately, no leads were generated from this search. At this point, the case goes cold. Jody's family had her declared legally dead in May 2001. In 2005, as the 10-year anniversary of Jody's disappearance approached, there was another flood of coverage for the case in the media, and more leads were generated, but still nothing led to Jody. The case remained cold for years, until 2008, when an unlikely package caused it to heat up in a major way. In June of 2008, the Mason City Globe Gazette received photocopies of Jody's 84-page personal journal in a large envelope with no return address. The only clue as to who it came from was a postmark from Waterloo, Iowa, a city an hour and a half away from Mason City. The journal had been in the possession of police since 1995 when the investigation began. So when the newspaper reported the package, investigators looked at it as a possible break in the case. Within days, the police announced that the sender had come forward and was identified as the wife of a former Mason City police chief. This is not the same police chief who presided over the case when it originally happened. This is a different police chief. And this is unconfirmed, but it's believed that she made the photocopies when her husband had brought the journal home, possibly to like analyze it or look into the case, and no motive was ever given as to why she sent the package. Frank Stearns, who was the police chief in Mason City at the time of Jody's disappearance, underwent scrutiny in 2011 when a former Mason City officer claimed that Stearns and two other officials had been involved in her disappearance in a subsequent cover-up. Stearns retired amid this scrutiny, and an investigation into him did not validate any of the claims by the former officer. In December 2016, a retiring legislator named John Kuiker discussed his experience working with the case. At the time of Jody's disappearance, he was a member of the Iowa State House Public Safety Committee. Kuiker went as far as to discuss that a cover-up had taken place by Mason City officials. He speculated this was the reason that the case had never been solved. Currently, there is no evidence of a cover-up. I want to make that clear, but obviously if there was a cover-up, the evidence would not be easy to find. So just throwing that out there. Kuiker's comments caused people to speculate even further about former police chief Stearns and his possible involvement in either the crime or a possible cover-up. 
Then in May of 2007, police served John Van Sice, now married and living in Arizona, with a search warrant for GPS data from his two vehicles. I do want to point out that he did not own these vehicles that they were serving the search warrant on at the time of Jody's disappearance. Records from the search warrant are sealed, so we really don't know a lot about them or what the probable cause was to find GPS data from vehicles that he didn't even own when the crime was committed. But this also led to him being required to provide finger and palm prints to police. And he was also subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury regarding this case. Unfortunately, the records from this grand jury are also sealed. So we have no idea what happened in this grand jury situation. The only thing we do know is that charges were not brought against Van Sice as a result of this grand jury. On New Year's Eve in 2019, just 30 minutes before the clock struck midnight, two adults dressed in all black were seen defacing a billboard in Mason City with Jody's picture that read, quote, Someone knows something. Is it you? Unquote. The vandals were seen by numerous passing cars during the act, and many other drivers saw their work after they were finished. Large spray-painted words under the original message on the billboard read, Frank Stern's Machine Shed. This prompted people to once again look into Stearns, who had already been investigated and cleared by police back in 2011, when those first allegations came out. But nothing came of this inquisition either. The identity of the vandals, their motive, or the meaning of the message has never been uncovered. As of today, Jody has still never been found, and the case is still being actively investigated 27 years later by the FBI, Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations, Mason City Police, and private investigators. Okay, y'all, so now it's theory time. And just a little disclaimer before I jump into this part, these theories I'm about to dive into are just that, theories. They are in no way true or what actually happened to Jody, and they are just things that I think could have happened after reviewing all the materials I've come across and vigorously researching this case. Got it? Good. Let's jump in. So after all the research I did on this case, in my opinion, Jody is most likely no longer alive, unfortunately, and there are four scenarios that I think could have happened. So I'm going to break them down for you, starting with the most obvious, John Van Sice. So Van Sice is always everyone's favorite person to point the finger at in this case because of his questionable relationship with Jody. I'm looking at the unsolicited gifts, naming his boat after her, the incident with Billy Pruins, etc., as well as those couple cryptic comments he made the day that Jody went missing. So option number one in my mind is that Van Sice decided that if Jody wasn't going to be with him, she couldn't be with anyone, and he abducted and killed her in some sort of crime of passion. This does seem very plausible looking at all the facts we have in this case. However, I just don't know if I can say 100% that I'm convinced that he's the guy for a couple different reasons. One, Van Sice has always denied having a romantic relationship with Jody. Obviously, he could be lying and Jody isn't here to give her side of the story. Maybe she was really creeped out by Van Sice. But he has maintained that he and Jody were never romantically involved since the very beginning. What it seems like to me is possibly that Van Sice had expressed interest in Jody, but maybe Jody didn't reciprocate it. It seems as though they remained friends despite this, considering that he threw her birthday party for her earlier that June, and she had went to Iowa City with him and other friends and spent all weekend on his boat. She even wrote in her personal journal about the trip and how much fun she had with the group. 
to me, if Van Syce was crazed enough about Jody that he was going to abduct and kill her in a fit of passion, I don't think he would have been able to hide it well enough that Jody would still feel comfortable to go with him on a weekend getaway or have him at her birthday party. Now, I know, of course, that there are killers out there who would absolutely be able to hide their evil and pull something like this off, but who's to say Van Syce is that cunning? Also, though Van Syce has been wary of the media, he has always been cooperative with police. From the morning he walked onto the crime scene and voluntarily told police that he was probably the last person to see Jody, he has always tried to help the investigation. He had his prints and DNA taken, like I mentioned earlier too, which were surely compared to the partial palm print found at the scene and that single hair that they found, and even went before this grand jury to testify regarding the case. And even though records from that grand jury are sealed, like I said, I have to believe that if the print or the DNA was a match, he would have been indicted. I don't know, maybe it's just me not wanting to believe the most obvious scenario, but I just haven't been convinced from what we have seen that Van Syce is guilty here. So going off of that, scenario number two is Tony Jackson being the perpetrator. If this is the case, the motive was probably sexual, seeing as Jackson is now a convicted serial rapist. Though Jackson has always denied any involvement, and the police did rule him out back in 1995, I can't help but come back to the bike incident where Jody was followed, as well as the woman who was followed by the biker from Jody's parking lot the morning before Jody disappeared. Jackson matched the description loosely of this biker in both of the situations. However, he was never officially identified as being the biker in either of them. I'm not sure why they didn't do a photo lineup or something with the witness from the morning before Jody went missing in an attempt to identify this person, whether it be Jackson or someone else, but I guess we'll never know. If there was a way to positively ID Jackson as being there the morning before, though, maybe that would have changed the police's focus. I also go back to Jackson's friend who stated that he had gone to the bar where Jody was a regular and talked to her there. Obviously, that story was never corroborated, like I said, but it raises some questions. In my mind at this point, Jackson is as much of a possibility as Van Syce for being the perpetrator because of these things. Scenario number three is one I haven't talked about yet, but I think could be equally likely, and that is a crazed fan. Back in 1995, Jody's address and phone number were public knowledge thanks to phone books, and she was a local celebrity as many local news personalities across the country are. Jody could have been the victim of a fan-turned-stalker who wanted to get even closer. Police have been adamant that this theory was probably not the cause of Jody's disappearance, citing that to pull this off, the perpetrator probably watched her to learn her patterns before grabbing her. But if someone was stalking her, they probably knew her patterns. Stalking, in part, is watching someone. And I also want to point out, that morning, Jody was running late. This wasn't her normal pattern, and it wasn't when she usually left for work. Additionally, she said to multiple friends and her self-defense teacher that she felt like she had been followed. And there was the white pickup truck incident, which the police have a report on. And this person in the truck was never identified, unfortunately, but it happened. We have a police report about it. So because of these things, I still think a stalker can't be ruled out. One more thing I want to mention is that mysterious man banging on Jody's door the day that she got back from Iowa City. A lot of people say, oh, maybe something happened in Iowa City and it was Van Syce banging on her door. But we have to remember, Van Syce used to live in that building and none of the neighbors could identify who this person was banging on her door. 
Van Sice lived there not even six months prior to Jody going missing. So I have to believe that if it was Van Sice, at least one neighbor would have seen him, recognized him as somebody who used to live in the building, and said, oh yeah, that was John Van Sice. So in my mind, I don't think it was Van Sice. Could it have been Tony Jackson? Maybe. But I also think it could have been a crazed stalker who all of a sudden flipped a switch and decided that they wanted to confront Jody. I don't know. That's just another thing that kind of plays into this whole swirling vortex of different events that have happened surrounding Jody leading up to her disappearance that just remain a big mystery. So that being said, my final scenario to float is a crime of opportunity. Police have pretty much ruled this out for the same reasons they've said that they've ruled out a stalker. But again, I just truly don't think we can rule some random person just looking for an opportunity to abduct someone out. This person could have absolutely no connection with Jody, which could have contributed to the fact that this case has never been solved. We've seen it with serial killers before who intentionally chose victims at random with no connection to the killer themselves in an effort to conceal their crimes and get away with what they were doing for longer. Israel Keyes popped into my mind because he's a prime example of this type of killer. And while I'm not saying that Keyes is responsible for whatever happened to Jody, I'm saying that it could have been someone acting similarly to him or with the same type of MO as him in the way that maybe this person was bouncing around, traveling around, killing at random. And like I said, with the stalker theory, this was not Jody's normal routine. She was leaving late for work. So who's to say that the moment that she was leaving right at that time, somebody didn't grab her because they saw her and were already on the hunt for someone to commit a crime against? Do I think this is the most likely scenario? No, I don't. But I don't think it's impossible. And without more information, I just don't think we can rule it out. So there you have it. Those are my four theories as to the perpetrator and motive in this case. And while I can't say that I have one that I lean to more than the others, I think they're all pretty solid. And of course, I could be completely wrong too. Unfortunately, this case has a huge deficit of physical evidence, and so it's hard to corroborate or rule out any of these theories. But one more thing I do want to mention is we have this single hair that the police found. We also now have the ability to glean DNA from fingerprints. We have touch DNA. DNA was in its infancy in 1995, but now in 2022, we have so much more at our disposal to be testing and looking into things like this. And so my hope is that they have already retested the DNA or tried to gather more DNA from evidence that was bagged at the crime scene from this hair that was found. And, you know, we have familial DNA now. So even if there's not a match in any database in CODIS or anything else for the this print for this hair for a DNA profile. Maybe if they worked with somebody like Parabon Labs, who does familial DNA to help solve crimes, they could find the person that that DNA profile left at the scene belonged to. I just have to believe that with the advancement in technology, whatever person or group did something to Jody is running out of places to hide. And my hope is that with this advancement in technology, that we will be able to identify this person through one means or the other and figure out what happened to Jody. 
So now I have the honor of introducing Steve Ridge to you all in the hopes that he may be able to answer some of these lingering questions that we have. Steve has been working on this case in his personal time for a number of years and has spoken with numerous people closely involved, including John Van Syce and former police chief Frank Stearns. Steve works as a journalist, a media consultant, and an independent investigator, and is sitting down with me today to shed more light on this case. Steve believes that he has come very close to discovering what really happened to Jody Hoosentrude, and even thinks that he has talked to the person who perpetrated the crime. Welcome, Steve, and thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be with you, Grace. So I guess we'll jump right in. What first drew you to begin investigating the Jody case? Well, uh, our company, my former company, had a uh, very extensive uh, relationship with Jody actually throughout her career. Um, and so our lives, although we never met, uh, there was a lot of overlap. Uh, she actually, her first television job was at a television station where I, many years ago, had been an assistant news director. So I had an affinity for that station. And it happened to be down the road, less than two miles from my uh, Marion, Iowa office, where uh, I had been for 30 years. Uh, and so during the time that uh, Jody went missing, um, I actually was, was very nearby, but I traveled about 85% of the time back in 95. And so I just really um, was able to only follow the case on a surface basis. And even though our people had worked with her as a voice coach in Cedar Rapids and in Alexandria, Minnesota, and had helped place her at uh, the TV station in Mason City, we had never uh, physically met to the best of my knowledge. And I, I essentially um, came across a videotape which she had sent to me back when she was looking for work and when we ultimately helped her get a job in Mason City. And it had her personal uh, card, her business card taped to it. And, you know, back in those days, everybody basically edited their own audition tapes and everything. And I looked at it, uh, this has only been less than two years ago, and I looked at it as uh, we were getting ready to move from office to office, and I felt compelled to keep that tape, uh, and the more I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, you never know, maybe there's a story on here which police are unaware of that she might have covered in Alexandria, and it could have been something that prompted a perpetrator to follow up and uh, possibly, you know, try to take things out on her once she was in Mason City. So I, I called and spoke with the police chief and the lead investigator in Mason City. Uh, they were very interested in the tape, and I got them a copy. It was a little difficult to make a copy because it was very old. It was a 23-year-old tape, uh, actually 24 years old, I guess, at that point. And then I also provided a copy to the folks who run a website called findjody.com, which is kind of a central clearinghouse for all things uh, investigative around Jody Hoosentrude. And when they heard about the tape and realized that I was right in Iowa uh, and that they were scattered across the country, they, they sort of encouraged me to look into the case. And so that's, that's how I got started. And uh, I asked what the gap was in terms of information. And um, 
uh, if, for instance, I said, you know, what about the, the, the key suspects, if you will, and I use that term in quotes because uh, police have not referred to these two people, of, uh, persons of interest as suspects, but they basically told me that those people, John Van Sice, had not spoke in, to the media in 24 years, and um, that Tony Jackson, who was in prison, hadn't spoken to the media in 20 years. And so I didn't like the sound of that. And I set out to get interviews with both of them. And uh, within a matter of uh, months, I, I was able to secure sit down in person interviews with I, uh, both of them. One in uh, out in Arizona, where I made four trips to Phoenix to convince John Van Syce to talk. And the other, after a lot of uh, necessary security clearances and all of that. I got into Minnesota State Prison um, and uh, up near Minneapolis, actually in St. Paul, uh, and was able to get to Tony Jackson and, and did lengthy interviews with, with both of those key persons of interest. Yeah, that's crazy that you've been able to sit down and talk with these people who have literally not spoken to the media in so many years. Um, why do you think that you've been able to manage to get them to talk to you when they haven't talked to anyone else? Well, I guess if, if I think I have one sort of unique quality uh, as an individual, it's, uh, it's persuasion. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I use that term, I'm, I'm really humble about it, but uh, the fact is um, I, I really try to listen to people and I try to have a very honest conversation with them. And in both cases, I, I was able to communicate to them that I felt they had done a disservice to themselves by isolating themselves and not allowing their story to be told at a time when over and over again, people make outlandish claims and, and all regarding them, knowing that they won't defend themselves. And so, you know, I think the bottom line is that my message resonated. I had to be patient. I didn't, you know, I, uh, several weeks before I uh, went to Arizona, 48 hours had shown up with a network correspondent with the lights on and, you know, lights blaring at 7.30 in the evening and uh, knocking on the door and he, he opens the door and then realizes who they are and says, you know, go away. And that's happened repeatedly with, with journalists. It happened with Up and Vanished, uh, the number one podcast, which uh, with a two hour special on oxygen a few weeks ago, showed up with uh, a bunch of folks at the, at his house and tried to bully him into talking. And uh, that just doesn't work. Uh, I made a soft approach, met first with his wife for coffee and had lengthy conversations with her. I think I won her confidence and that translated to my eventual introduction to John Van Sice. And uh, once, you know, we broke the ice and he realized that uh, I was seeking the truth and that I would be fair to him, um, he embraced uh, that conversation and subsequently has continued to only talk to me when there are developments. Yeah, that's, you know, that's such a cool thing that you've been able to talk to both him and Tony Jackson um, when they haven't been talking to anyone else. Would you say those two are still the prime suspects? And obviously they haven't been named as actual suspects, but of the people we know who were somewhat involved or questioned as persons of interest, do you think those today are still the two people that are most closely looked at? 
Well, they're the most uh, closely referred to. Um, and interestingly, the in a very, very rare uh, statement many years ago, the Mason City Police Department actually dismissed at the time Tony Jackson as a person of interest without giving a lot of specifics for their rationale. But there was something quite compelling uh, that they were aware of, which uh, led them to believe that he was not, in fact, um, a suspect, even a strong suspect, at least at that time. Although, you know, that's many years ago and a lot of mistakes were made at the time. But um, the, I would tell you that the mainstream media has largely ignored that uh, fact and, and rarely reports it and often includes it in their coverage uh, because I think they're, you know, they have great pictures of this suspect who looks daunting and, you know, who's serving uh, life in prison without parole for four rapes in 18 days. And so I think they, they want to include that in the narrative as it relates to John Van Sice. He uh, definitely was in a very uh, close position and, and uh, reportedly, uh, he, he claims that he actually was with Jody the night before she went missing and that they had watched a videotape that he had, uh, which was of her birthday party a couple of weeks earlier. And so it, he, he was very close in a relationship and he... He does remain, I guess, the primary person who is, is cited. Police did, in fact, um, a couple of years ago, they, they essentially got a search warrant to look at both of his vehicles. Um, that became public. Uh, until I met with him, it was not known that prior to that, two weeks earlier, he actually had been subpoenaed to come back to Iowa, and I disclosed that oh, I guess about a year ago, that he was brought back to Iowa specifically to be re-fingerprinted, have his palm prints done, do a uh, blood test and a swab test for DNA. And so uh, he, in fact, is still what I would describe as a person of interest. He certainly is a person that has been pursued in this case, even though he's never formally been named as a suspect. Right. Did anything ever come of that? I know they found a palm print on her car, but... They, they've never come up with uh, what they would characterize as a definitive match. Um, okay. And there is some question about the origin of that palm print and whether, in fact, it would, was the perpetrator or could have been someone who was working the crime scene at the time. So there's, there's a little mystery that surrounds uh, even that bit of information. And of course, there was virtually no other trace other than the items that were left at the scene, uh, which included uh, one of her uh, red high heels and uh, a bent car key and a hairdryer and you know, some other uh, earrings and other personal effects and what appeared to be drag marks from the scene um, in this parking lot. And so they, they, there just is no other there was no other evidence uh, recovered. There was no blood at the scene. There was no indication that anyone had actually gotten inside the car because uh, she was apparently very likely abducted from behind while uh, putting the key into the uh, lock itself. Okay, interesting. I guess changing gears a little bit from suspects to the case itself, it's been cold for nearly 25 years now. 
Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's sheer luck or a happen chance. I do not believe that this was a carefully orchestrated, planned event done by professionals. And there's, there's a lot of speculation uh, by folks from afar that look at the case that, that say that had to be, has to be the case. It happened at uh, 4.15 or 4.30 in the morning. Uh, even though there were people that heard screams, at least three people inside the apartment building heard screams and did not call police. Uh, they, for a variety of reasons that are unclear, uh, because it apparently was a fairly loud confrontation, and it was uh, still right on the edge of darkness. Um, this is a fairly remote setting. I've actually been to the scene numerous times both day and night, and uh, even though lighting has changed, you know, over the over the years, it's still um, it's it's a pretty isolated spot, and it's just not. Uh, people think, well, it's on a main road or whatever, but it's a it's a it's a very quiet area, and I think it's very possible that this uh, was a sudden um, uh, confrontation which turned into escalated and turned into something more and that uh, the person who was responsible simply uh, got lucky from the standpoint of uh, leaving any evidence uh, behind or making a misstep which uh, uh, would essentially put him uh, or her under arrest. So there's been a lot of speculation that there might be some kind of cover-up with the police chief. There was the vandalism of the Jody billboard just this past New Year's Eve, um, or that even the person who did this was stalking her for a number of days or weeks leading up to this to learn her patterns so that they could abduct her. Would you say that you believe more so that this is a crime of opportunity than somebody covering something up or watching her for a long time? Well, I think that there are probably multiple layers uh, to to your question, and also multiple layers to the answer. Because uh, in the if you put this in the context of the time frame, this was a time when things were very uh, very loose in terms of uh, drug dealing, uh, running of guns. Uh, uh, just a, a lot of uh, activity in the Mason City area, which was really very renowned for, you know, being a, a real trouble spot, if you will, in the United States. Um, and so I think that there there were some things going on at the Mason City Police Department at that time that were fairly loose. And uh, there may well have been um, some indirect cover-ups of activity around the case, but I do not believe that it involved direct involvement in the case or uh, the plan to, you know, uh, abduct her or the event that came about, which was was her abduction. So uh, while there, there, you know, there may be smoke around all of that, but uh, I'm, I'm really not sure that there's that there's fire. I also believe that there may have been some fairly unprofessional and sloppy investigative technique early on, which also uh, clouds the issue. And, and some of those things could have uh, possibly been covered up uh, as well. Now, I, I do believe that she was uh, somewhat stalked or watched, at least. I think it, 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 it fits the fair definition of 
by today's standards of stock, someone who repeatedly kept an eye on her, was enamored with her, whether they did so when they were on a bike and she was jogging or in a car when she was out walking or jogging or uh, perhaps just kept an eye kept an eye on her coming and going either at the TV station or at her apartment. And, and you know, back in those days, the her her name and phone number and address was published right in the, the public phone book. So uh, people could very easily find her and uh, uh, all it took was a public phone book to find out where she lived and, you know, then keep an eye out for uh, her car coming and going. Right. Yeah. That's crazy to think that she could be so easily found. And I guess the nature of being on TV for a career, you have people who know who you are and probably some overeager fans, I would guess. My next question for you is, what do you think the most puzzling parts of this case are? It's obviously a very intricate and complicated case. The whole thing with the white van being cited by multiple people is a big question mark. Um, but are there any other details that you think could lead to a conclusion if they were to be sorted out or looked into more closely? Well, I actually think uh, it's almost the reverse. There are so many other uh, circumstantial events and people, uh, including there's a former city official, actually, who was involved in some activity where he was uh, placing uh, phone calls to a, uh, a lot of women and uh, was, you know, following them or what have you, keeping track of them. And at one time, he was uh, head of city works in Mason City. And so he's, he's one individual who uh, was in the mix, if you will. Uh, there's another individual who uh, was later found guilty of having murdered some other people related to drugs and ended up uh, uh, in prison and, and on death row. And uh, he actually had an accomplice who was also doing life in prison. And, and I'm also the only one that has ever spoken with her. Her name was Angela Johnson. And she has told me that she believes that um, her uh, associate, uh, Dustin Honkin, who's doing life in prison, does know who was responsible for uh, Jody's demise. Uh, I came up with 11 possible people who I felt needed to be examined and cleared in order to, you know, uh, be able to eliminate them as suspects. So that, and, and the odds of there being 11 people in the orbit around a single person like this is is really astronomical it's it's just it's almost impossible to understand how complicated the the environment was at that time and there are like i said i i, I came up with 11 uh i don't uh i've i've kind of in my own mind ruled a number of them out but um i would tell you i think it's it's a very very complex case and i think that's part of what makes this thing elusive to this day yeah, that is just insane that there's so many people surrounding her that could have had a hand in what happened. Do you think that you'll ever get answers from that man who was in prison, who you believe knows what happened to her? Well, I attempted. I heard from, uh, I, I did reach out uh, because I, knowing that he was set to be actually put to death on January 15th, 
Wow. Uh, you know, just a matter of weeks ago, yeah. uh, that had been an order by the new administration and uh, attorney general. They were going to uh, execute five people, and he was one of them. Uh, however, that got stayed at the last minute. At the time I reached out, I did hear back from his attorneys who flew out from Philadelphia. They represent people who have been uh, sentenced to death to make sure they have legal representation all the way up until execution and, you know, all of that. And they were very interested to know what I had uncovered, but I have not heard back from them and I'm not sure what strategy they might be pursuing. I, I suggested that, you know, it was possible that he might want to share that information as a bargaining chip to try to avoid execution. And uh, that seemed to seemed to resonate, uh, but that hasn't gone anywhere. And because an additional stay was put on the execution, now we're not under the, the ticking clock of inevitability that he would be, would be executed. All right. So last question I have for you, and you don't have to answer with a name. I don't want to compromise your investigation, but do you think you know who killed Jody? Well, I will tell you that I believe that I know who abducted Jody. And uh, the reason I make that distinction is without uh, certainty that the abductor was responsible for the murder, uh, I uh, will stop short of saying the person uh, is responsible for the murder. I do believe that I know an individual, know of an individual who was involved in her abduction. Very interesting. I guess that is very true. Um, her body's never been found, although she was declared legally dead. You can't for certain say that the same person who abducted or killed her if it wasn't multiple people. Thank you, Steve, for taking the time to sit down and shed more light. So this case has so many twists and turns, like I've said from the beginning, and I tried my best to do it justice. It's still ongoing, and with the advances in DNA technology and science, I truly believe that one day we will find Jody. June 27, 2022 marked 27 years without any answers to Jody's whereabouts, and she has now officially been missing as long as she was alive. If you believe you have any information that would be helpful in locating Jody, you can call the Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa at 515-223-1400 or 800-425-1111. Tips can be anonymous. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. Don't forget to rate and review if you enjoyed this episode. As always, all of my source material will be listed on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com. So hop over there if you'd like to dive into some of the source material that helped me put this episode together. And of course, you can contact me there or through Instagram DMs at Graces on the Case Podcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next time for our next case. Music.